between these two forces, these two conditioned activities, the likes pulling us towards and the dislikes pulling us away from, the attraction towards, the aversion from, and how much our life can be shaped in every activity of our life based upon the influence and the considerable influence of likes and dislikes as a barometer, in fact, for every activity of body, speech and mind. And we uh, ask ourselves, is that it? Is that what my life is? Just a, a bunch of forces within and without moving me about in the so-called, uh, in my likes and dislikes, and then I'm covering it all up and I'm calling it my personal choice. <laughs> and in that we begin to question that. We have some doubt. Is, is that what existence <coughs> is all about until death do us part? And we stop. The moment of stopping, we could say, genuine, authentic stopping, we could say is the beginning of samadhi. It's the beginning of finding some steadiness um, within, which just allows us and gives us some opportunity to look at that push and pull towards and away from, uh, which so easily and rather unconsciously determines human behaviour. And with the likes and the dislikes, of course, it also implies that with the likes, what we are attracted and pulled towards can also, in, in equivalent circumstances, one step towards is one step away from. One step away from is one step towards. And we want, almost desperately sometime, to live in a world which is thoroughly pleasing and thoroughly likeable, and equally important that we are thoroughly pleasing and thoroughly likeable to others. Nobody on this earth in its entire history has ever achieved such a position and yet we want to be the exception to this. <laughs> and somebody told me recently that the earth as it comes now to about the six billion mark that there are more people I don't know who worked this out, living on the earth at the present time than that, what there has been in the entire human history. And still, we want to be exceptional. <laughs> so we stop. We come to some stillness. We, we, we look at that and we see the trouble, the conflict and the confusion that clinging and holding and being so identified with our likes and dislikes, what it does to life. What it does, not only abuses our relationship to life and being trapped in it, but, it, but what it does to others, what it does to the environment, to the nature, to everything, because we like this, we don't like this, we want this, we don't want that. In that, there is this identity, of course, which goes on, helps to give incredible shape to the idea of who I am through this. And various factors, socially agreed upon or nationally agreed upon, we strongly tend to identify with and make much of 
and in our doing of that becomes the further definition of who we are through what we have identified with through the particular roles that you and I have cultivated or have been given to us and you see, is that it? is our life just a movement of the roles in which it seems like some of them we have entered into and chosen, we've worked for, we've struggled for, we've pursued, we've, we've achieved, or it's fallen into our hands. And other kind of roles that we have in life, which we never really um, consciously chose or searched for, but they came to us through the determination and the influence of other people. And we have found ourselves many times in life in a particular role which we didn't really um, work for or whatever. It seemed to come out of the circumstances and sometimes out of something we like to do. And I haven't just got in mind having children as an unexpected <laughs> event um, because of something that one was liking to do nine months previously. Many situations in our life Excuse my asides. <laughs> I'm speaking as a parent there. Now, many, many of the likes that take place and the, and the responses to, as I say, bring all sorts of emotions from us. And those emotions, those affairs of the heart, may go unexamined. May go unexamined and therefore bring terrible conflict and confusion to both ourselves and to others. And I've got um, um, one, of my, one in mind, and an, an important one, it needs constant vigilance, and that one is the whole identity with one's nation, with one's nationality, with the whole idea of the, of the nation-state. And how in that one hears in this country as well as other parts of the world, of course, of, 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 of um, um, children who stand before the flag uh, in the morning or sit before it or whatever with their hand on their heart and, um, and mutter something to, to the flag <laughs> there. And certainly I find myself when I hear that muttering something as well and it's not the same as what the children are saying. <laughs> and it's a common phenomenon that goes on. And it's an affair it's of, of the heart. And it's an affair of the heart which it touches strong emotional feelings and sometimes those strong emotional feelings of loyalty and identity with. And a huge mythology then brings up and it goes unquestioned and unexamined. And then one has whatever it might be. In this case, it's the United States. You know, America, the great, America is the greatest country on earth. It's junk thinking. It's an area of complete self-delusion. To actually believe any country is the greatest country on, on earth. The, 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 the English and their silly, trivial mentality had... <laughs> the same view but now since the country is in such chaos they've actually changed it <laughs> so the identity the loyalty with the, the bonding the tightening around things builds up tremendous forces of ego 
which get unleashed on this earth. And it's got something to do with the emotional life and the emotion of loyalties, specifically in this case, the identity with, and then my country right or wrong, my views right or wrong, my position right or wrong. And we can't examine it because the emotional life has got so identified with the I and the I has got so identified with something which is meaningless to begin with. Sometimes, as I say, we move into roles and activities in life as a kind of expression of some uh, of our inner life, and it's right and appropriate, obviously. And it's also right and appropriate that roles can come to us which we haven't particularly worked or chosen in life, and we res re respond there. But all of that activity and the way that you and I describe ourselves in that activity, one moment can be gone. One moment. Role is a social agreement. Role is cooperation between people. Role requires the outer as much as the inner. And in a dynamic culture and environment, social environment that you and I live in, not one single role that you and I have deserves one extra moment in time because of one wants it to be like that. And there's enough dynamic and enough changes which are going on in our life and in our roles, either inwardly through change or outwardly through change, which ought to make us extraordinarily aware to the degree that we've got any investment in any kind of identity and role whatsoever. That same kind of awareness that a loving mother or a loving father has for their uh, baby daughter or baby son who watches with great love and care there to support and protect or whatever we need to have the same kind of vigilance in our awareness so we understand the very momentary fragility of a role. It's not a God-given position for you and I. It arises because we cooperate to make it arise. It's co-participatory in, in if that's not clear, we'll suffer, suffer every time a role or a relationship or a position that we have had is taken away from us. Because we haven't understood the interconnectedness that forms the position. Sometimes in our identities with and the build-up that takes place, one of the valuable or, or difficult things, I was um, just yesterday evening speaking at uh, CIMC, that's the Cambridge Insight Meditation Centre, and speaking on issues and including some aspects of um, identity. And in the question and answer period immediately after, one um, person brought up a, an important question and she was speaking about the plight and the, and the horror, of course, that faced uh, the Jews um, 
during the Second World War. And one of the comments that she made, and it's an important one, that she remembers speaking to one of those who uh, lived through that terrible uh, period, of how the person said that the, the, the willingness to, the ability to survive through a situation was due in part to um, her connection and identity as a Jew. And that they were in it together, they were working with this together, they were trying to survive through all of this. And if it had just been left to her in that horror of nightmares that was taking place, she could never have got through it, she'd gone absolutely crazy. But knowing of her Jewishness and of her identity with the, the culture and, and, and the faith and the history, it, it gave her strength. And she said, so it isn't identity with, a very important aspect. And we need to be identified with, and there are many cultures and groups in this country that are engaged in all of that, uh, and elsewhere, of course. My response to that was, one must tread extraordinarily carefully when one, whatever one does in that way. What, in other words, what can be through identity with a genuine support can become, through intensity, through investment, through loyalty, through attachment and holding, that identity becomes a division against a separateness. And in that separateness, where is the samadhi of the heart? Where is the samadhi of the heart then? When it's us and them, and the division, and the aggression, and the violence that accompanies it. What's happened to the heart when it's got become, as it so easily can, so restricted and so narrow through a form of identity with, at the expense of? What are we identified with at the expense of. In June, I had the immense privilege of being in the Middle East and being in Israel. And I went with a number of uh, Israelis from uh, East uh, Jerusalem through to uh, the West Bank, to Nablus, the main town of the West Bank, 15 or so uh, Israelis, psychologists, psychotherapists, social workers, peace activists, to meet with a number of Palestinians. Most uh, Palestinians acted as hosts for us for the three days. I was the uh, fac facilitator of the me meeting. And in the three-day meeting, we had the theme of it was transformation of suffering and all the terror and horror of the suffering which takes place in that region. And nearly all, without exception, of our Palestinian uh, hosts, we stayed in their homes uh, in Nablus on the uh, West Bank, had been in prison for various lengths of time, from two years um, to 17 years, both men and women. And part of the campaign was to try to release some of the if not all of the Palestinians in jail, more than 6,000 of, of them, of whom a small minority have, what we would say, blood on their hands. And in talking 
with our Palestinian uh, brothers and uh, sisters, I, um, among the informal meetings and formal um, meetings, I said, how, how, did you, how was it during this long period uh, of imprisonment? And you know, one of the brother of one who was in prison, who came out last year, he was in prison since the Six Day War. 27 years he was in prison and they never made any announcement or anything told anybody and one day they came to his cell, opened the cell up and just pushed him outside the front of the prison and said you're free. After 27 years he said he didn't know what to do, where to go, you can imagine. So I asked them, well how was it for you in these years in, 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 in uh, prison there? And they said again and again what gave us support was two, two things. One was the solidarity with the Palestinian uh, people, and the second, which gave, second factor which gave them su support was that, for most of them, their Marxist brothers and sisters struggling and fighting for social justice all over the world gave them support as well. And the combination of those two things kept them sane. But still, that gap, I just use it as one example, gap in, was such that in such a closely knit community of Israelis and Palestinians, quite a few of those participating had never had any depth of communication with Israeli and the uh, Palestinians had never had any depth of communication um, vice versa, never had any real communication with each other. So their picture and their image of each other was mostly through second-hand sources. And we said, let's put aside the ideology. Let's put aside the territorialism. Let's put aside the labels that we make of each other. Let's work, let's see some other way and that some other way has to be a samadhi of the heart. That the differences are there. Can we find ways to find what is common? What is shared? And we heard stories from Palestinians and Israelis of the suffering that these communities continue to go through and that was what was being shared and through that sharing which was taking place suddenly meeting points were being found which people hadn't seen, hadn't noticed. So if we're going to find some resolution to issues we need a concentration on the heart got to bring the heart in and that connectedness so that the common matters much more to us than the differences. And that's what spiritual life, if it has any meaning on this earth, that's the meaning that it has. That the common element between us matters much more than the differences. So that you and I can respect the diversity of culture, respect the diversity of religion, Respect the diversity of views, of our identity with groups and organizations, etc., of course, 
Our earth needs that tremendous diversity, but not at the expense of realizing what we all share by being on this earth together. If we lose that common element, the samadhi of that, we lose everything. During the uh, three days in Nablus, there was a demonstration. The Israelis and I, with the Palestinians, had quite a discussion about uh, the demonstration. Demonstration was to free all Palestinian prisoners. Discussion was, do we go on this march or don't we? Some said, yes, I want to go. Some said, no. Some said, well, I don't think all Palestinians should be released because some of them belong to Hamas. And, uh, and jihad and, and, and uh, in terrorism, etc., etc. There was some risk, of course, and the agreement was, uh, out of the 16, 13 decided to join the demonstration. There was quite some concern, even though Hamas, the uh, um, militants, had agreed, in fact, for the first time it would be a completely peaceful demonstration and had the support of Fatah and Fadah and even the mayor of Nablus was going to walk on it and, every, and all the dignitaries, it was going to be a different kind of demonstration. Five minutes, because the demonstration started just a few minutes from where we were, five minutes before the demonstration got underway, um, one of the uh, women just did a final check that it would be safe to go. By the time the person arrived, Israeli soldiers had opened up fire. People were shot, killed, all hell was breaking loose. The tear gas went in, the rubber bullets went in, the real bullets went, went, went in. There was chaos and pandemonium go, going on and terror and people running in off the streets um, into the uh, meeting place which was a, a healing place for um, um, Palestinians and giving us harrowing accounts of what was taking place during that period of time. And amidst all, all of this which was taking place and the discussions that were going on during the next two or three uh, hours came, it was our last day, and it came for our turn to leave and it was felt that we should leave a bit earlier partly for fairly obvious uh, reasons and whether we should go through the hills and that way out and our Palestinian uh, uh, host when all of this chaos was going on said look we, we haven't had a meal and um, look can we go out and, and get a pizza and coca-cola for you you can see how far American culture has extended itself <laughs> And uh, they were so concerned for our stomachs, you know, <laughs> while some of the Israelis were more concerned for their lives than their stomachs. <laughs> and, but just the gener generosity of spirit and, and kindness, and all the labels were forgotten. It was people supporting, caring, loving e each other and giving protection to each other, and that was very, very deeply, deeply touching. And as I say, our small uh, event uh, there and some lovely outflows which are taking place is one of a number of many some of you may know here that have been taking place in that region over the years why do they take place? 
because both people in both communities says, I will drop my identity. It doesn't matter so much to me that I have to be antagonistic, if not hateful or paranoid about other people. And we've got to find ways, I use that as a kind of uh, politicised example, but doesn't that occur in our own day-to-day -day life? Can't we think of clear examples in our own life where we've clung to, identified with, and we've lost that um, samadhi of the heart which goes beyond the identity? One of the things, and I mentioned when I was being asked uh, yesterday evening, is that it can feel to be rather agitated or nervous in our life when we begin to drop or let go of some of the identity that we have and can feel some confusion. But Dharma teachings stress unshakably for thousands of years now the necessity and the importance of clear awareness and understanding of interconnectedness as being a truthful element and aspect of existence that it's a coexistent state that you and I participate in and that that recognition of that must be from the heart that it matters more to us than what we identify with, even in a useful and valuable and helpful way as we were hearing with the, uh, uh, the threatened victim of the, of the Holocaust and other. Even though there's value in that and it shouldn't be undermined and people's right to join, to be with groups and to connect and be supported by, but as I say, let it not un overshadow the deep interconnectedness with, with life. So our identity with doesn't become a vehicle for hate and violence and rage and aggression. Interconnectedness must run deep. And we have to feel that in the silence of things, in the stillness of things, in the nature of things, and be steady in it. And let not the eye be the shadow over life. You see that in all of that, in that samadhi, in the samadhi of the heart, it actually informs thought. If the heart's in the right place, the thought will be informed by the heart. And thus, when we've been speaking here of mindfulness, we speak interchangeably of what is heartful. When the loving-kindness meditations given it's all a very direct reminder to us of our obvious self-evident interconnectedness with each other so the heartfulness aspect and the settling with the heart informs thinking but some people will say oh I'm not um, an intellect I'm not a heartful type I'm an intellectual type I'm a, a, a thinking type and that person may use the resources of reason, information, um, knowledge, 
uh, expertise and its application in huge numbers of ways in day-to-day -day life. And as we know, there, there is and continues to be tremendous stress on the, the field of knowledge, on knowing about. We've touched upon this in earlier days of the retreat. All of, all of that can get divorced from the heart, sometimes in extreme ways. I was only told ten, ten days ago that in the defense factories of the United States, they are working in the laboratories there to see, to produce weapons which can inflict the most pain on people. What weapons, what can they do to produce weapons to inflict the most pain? The extreme examples of life and the barbaric, uncivilized and unevolved uh, movement of life, something to do with the divorce of head from heart, in the name of being evolved, advanced, making so much progress. So if the head of knowledge, information, uh, expertise, as I said, and all the extraordinary things that, that does generate for us, what way in our life is it connected to the heart, to heartfulness? And what is heartfulness? It's love. What is love? It's the revelation as the daily human experience of our interconnectedness with life. Not the alienation from it. Not the separation from it. Not the duality and the horror of dualisms and, and all that goes with it. So our teachings and our practices in numerous ways are a consistent reminder to us of the heart's and the life's connection and relationship to what's with us day in and day out. As I say, the focus of the meditations, the practice of the meditations, the discipline of them, is really to allow all of that to settle in so that the heart stays steady. Steady in its love. Steady in its friendship. Steady in its compassion. Steady in its warmth and connection and appreciation. And that heart which is in, in steady, is in the right place, as you and I will, will, will say, as I say, informs the thought. It informs thinking. And that informing of thinking means that one doesn't put aside one's ability in life for critical analysis. One doesn't put aside one's ability in life to penetrate with the mind into issues and into problems and into areas of, of suffering of people and animals and the environment. But the heart's in the right place. And because the heart's in the right place, as it informs thinking and speech and action and pen and creativity and what you and I do in the world, it means that the critical faculty for some is heightened and perceptive. Why? Heart's in the right place. 
And we need with ourselves to realign ourselves, really, with head and heart. And if one is in any field, any work, any livelihood in life, and one knows there's an awful, unbridgeable, sometimes, contradiction and, para and, and gap between what the heart says and what one is doing 40 hours, hours a week, then that needs to be addressed for the spiritual life, for the full cultivation of the Eightfold Path, that livelihood and the samadhi of the heart do find ways to really meet and work together. That's right livelihood and right samadhi and the Buddha's uh, teaching and formula formulation really do have a meeting place. And therefore we say, if I'm going to lead the spiritual life, I'm going to bring my heartfulness into life, then not let, let, don't let me leave any stone unturned. Don't let me be afraid to question. Don't let me be afraid to use my mind to look at things, investigate things, change things, speak up, or whatever it might be, if one knows one's heart's in the right place. And one can take risks in all sorts of ways and make mistakes in all sorts of ways but it's that heartfulness is coming out of love which the obvious sense of connectedness and that love and connectedness has some genuine vision to it and therefore out of our love for other people we are very watchful of what we identify with very watchful because we love other people perhaps more than they love themselves. We care for other people more than what they realise is their deepest interests of life, which is to live with deep con contentment and deep security. Each time we take a breath, it's a reminder to us of our interconnectedness. We all breathe together here. Each time we, we draw in the air and release it, it reminds us of our uh, inseparability from all that's around us. So as we engage in all of these processes, so as I said, the samadhi of the heart stays well and steady for us. And in it staying well and steady, the manifestations are in these links of interconnection. And one might say, if we don't, then what's the alternative? If heart and head and life is not revealing something deep and intimate with it and with others, what's the alternative to it? Is the alternative worth a thought for support? May all beings live with love. May all beings live with an unstoppable friendship towards life. May all beings be free and accommodating. <laughs>
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.